Hello and welcome to Women Who Protect, a monthly series as part of the Ontic Protective Intelligence podcast. In a profession largely dominated by men, we spotlight women working in a wide range of positions within security, protection, and law enforcement. We will hear their stories, discuss their accomplishments, and also seek their advice for women and girls who might be interested in a career in protection or security. I'm Dr. Marisa Randazzo with Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. After nearly three decades of experience working in security and protection, as the chief research psychologist at the U.S. Secret Service, and then in the private sector providing security guidance to corporations, educational institutions, and high-profile individuals, I know firsthand the immense value that women bring to this field. And I know the challenges that we face. I look forward to sharing with you the stories of women who protect and hope they inspire other women and girls to consider joining our ranks. Now, on to the podcast. Mary Hackman is an international global security and conflict specialist with over 20 years of experience designing, leading, and managing U.S. government and private sector analytical and security programs. She's a recognized subject matter expert on counterviolent extremism, protective intelligence, and organizing multi-stakeholder efforts toward understanding complex issues driving global insecurity and courses of action for mitigation. She currently works as the director of the Global Intelligence and Global Security Operations Center at Visa. Mary, welcome to Women Who Protect. Thank you. Happy to be here. Let's start. I, I always love to get a sense when I talk with women who are in different aspects of security, of law enforcement. How did you get into the field of security in the first place? Well, I would say that my route into security is a bit roundabout. Uh, I joined OSAC, which is part of the State Department's Bureau of Diplomatic Security, back in 2002. But it was a completely different environment then. There were only a handful of analysts there. And, and the way I got into it was that I'd, I'd moved to D.C. right after college. I had no job. Um, I took this job as an admin assistant. And it happened to be on the first day I met a woman who'd also gone to Indiana, um, where I had just graduated from. And she and her roommate worked for OSAC. And so as is sort of the DC way. We stayed friends, we connected, <laughs> we networked, um, they invited me to things in five years, it took five years, but five years later, there was an interview for an Africa position. Uh, so they helped get me the interview, which I definitely think I probably would have gotten <laughs> today. Um, but, you know, I, I think it was my sort of, I, I had studied um, in Jerusalem for a year when I was in college. So I, I obviously had a passion for um, peace and conflict studies and a passion for exploring the world. And I did have some writing experience in the, in the job that I was in, which was a marketing job, but I was, I think it was sheer guts. Really. They, they asked me in the interview, something about Charles Taylor, who was then president of, of Liberia. And I said, well, I don't know anything about him, but if I, because I don't have any time, but if I, 
I got this job, (laughs) I would be thrilled to spend all of my time, you know, learning about Charles Taylor. And, you know, two weeks later, I became their Africa analyst. (laughs) (laughs) And and you got that opportunity, I'm assuming, to to do a deep dive into all things Charles Taylor. I did. I did get that opportunity. Yeah. So, you know, it was a roundabout way, but um, an interesting, (laughs) interesting time. Um, Tell us, it it would be really helpful at OSAC is one of those hidden gems in the field of security that that a lot of folks, especially early in their careers, don't know about. Can you give just kind of a, a quick description of what what OSAC does, or at least what they did when when you were there as an analyst? Sure. I think the main mission is still the same as it was 25 years ago, but um, the idea is to connect people in the private sector doing security for private sector organizations, and that can be a multinational company, it can be a non-governmental organization, a religious institution, um, anyone working in the private sector for um, for a U.S. organization is connected to the U.S. government and diplomatic security for security-related advice. So what we were doing at the time, and I believe there's the model is relatively similar today, is that you know the analysts would spend all day, they're broken down regionally and also functionally now in some other ways, but um, they'd be spending their whole day researching, talking to people about, you know, I, I, when I left, I was covering the Middle East. So there was a lot happening in Saudi Arabia, for example, this was an Al Qaeda was um, much stronger at the time. And so we would talk about, you know, the threats that we saw, we would get on the phone with people who lived there, I would travel to the region all the time, to host groups with local security representatives for those organizations, and we would um, we would share insight and expertise. And you know, this was all hosted by the regional security officers at the embassies overseas. So it was just this great experience to be talking to people all the time who were living and breathing the security environments in these other countries. And really, you know, just that just those conversations made my job a lot easier. I could say, well, yeah, I talked to so-and-so-and-so-and-so, and and, um, this is what they're doing based on whatever had happened that day. So uh, it was just a fabulous experience. And and that network of people obviously has grown and grown and still exists today, but it's it's where I still do all my benchmarking and go to conferences all the time and meet with the same people. And we really help each other out in the field. So, you know, anyone who isn't a member of that yet, I would highly recommend. I absolutely agree. So OSAC, for for those who don't know, is Overseas Security Advisory Council, and it's a a public-private partnership or network run by the State Department. Um, They've got a phenomenal annual conference. They've got great regional conferences and specialty conferences, and and I completely agree. It's a great resource for for those who aren't yet involved in it. And I also know, um, and I've only gotten involved in this in the past couple of years, they have a great women in security subsection or specialty group that that is phenomenal for networking and, and for information. It is. It's great. They have a, a very good job network, but they also, they have separate events of their own, sometimes in connection with other conferences, um, but their their content is great. And they have a, uh, they have an email list serve that asks questions every day and, and really great advice comes out of that. Also. Oh, that's fantastic. 
So you started out, again, sort of through the roommate connection in, in Washington, D.C., which I completely, I, I lived that as well, um, at, at, from sort of starting out with not knowing anything but getting this position as an analyst with OSEC, and now you are Director of Global Intelligence and the GSOC, the Global Security Operations Center for Visa. How did you get from point A to, you know, where you are now? Right. Well, you know, and I would say that this was always the field I wanted to be in. I got a, a, when I was in undergrad, my degree was in Middle Eastern studies and political science. And I studied abroad in, in Jerusalem for the, for the purpose of studying conflict and terrorism and peace processes. So this, this was the place I wanted to be. But, you know, I got this amazing opportunity with OSAC. I, I learned a lot in the years I was covering Africa. I moved toward covering the Middle East by the time, um, you know, I left. And I was there quite some time. But during that the sort of end of my time there, I was realizing that I wanted to do more to look at the underlying causes of some of this conflict and insecurity around the world and not just talk about the effects. Uh, so I went to George Mason. I got a, a master's degree from the School of Conflict and uh, Conflict Analysis and Resolution there, which is a great program. And um, from there, and I, I was able to do it part-time in the evening so I could work while I was taking the courses. And uh, from there, I moved into a position where I was working on contracts primarily with the U.S. military, U.S. Special Operations Command, Africa Command, um, did some projects with USAID and State Department as well where we were bringing interagency groups together to talk about some of these most vulnerable areas areas of the world and then really brainstorm some recommendations in this multi-group multi-agency effort that would that would work to lessen in whatever way is possible some of these causes of insecurity so we would get you know US government representatives and military representatives in the same room together with academics and local stakeholders and, you know, people who have a real, um, real stake in the outcome of a more secure environment in some of these areas. And in some cases, some of them had never met before. They didn't know the work that the other was doing. And it was just this amazing opportunity to bring people together, to learn from each other, to talk about solutions, to shoot down solutions that people thought were great and, mm -hmm. you know, then would realize, wait, this isn't going to work <laughs> for, <laughs> for this group of people and then come out with some incredible recommendations. So I, I did that work for quite some time. It was really some of the most rewarding work I have done, um, but it was contract work and contract change and shift. Um, and these did. And so there came a time when an opportunity came up uh, for me to join uh, Department of Homeland Security's Intelligence and Analysis Bureau, which I did for a short time. But interestingly, while I was there, I was gravitating toward work with the Domestic Security Alliance Council, which is an FBI-led uh, version of OSAC. It's a private sector, again, coming together to share concerns uh, related to the U.S. and the U.S. homeland and their operations there. And through, you know, doing several events with, with that group, I realized, you know, I reconnected with a lot of my OSAC friends and the private sector analysts who had moved up to, you know, in their careers by that point and who were becoming managers and directors. And 
um, this opportunity came up uh, to work at Visa to manage their GSOC and to build a protective intelligence program, which at the time they did not have. Um, so I moved over to take on that challenge of building this program with Visa. And that's how I got there. That's a fantastic progression from OSAC to DSAC <laughs> with some great projects in between. Um, and, and I want to just ask you, what would you consider to be the, the biggest turning point in your career? Right. Well, you know, in thinking about that, I would say the answer is there really wasn't one turning point. You know, there probably were a series of smaller turning points, um, you know, and that's actually something I've learned over time. I think that I've become more at peace with the idea that everyone's career is different, that everyone takes twists and turns and goes in different directions. It doesn't have to be so linear, you know, just move up, get a new title, get a promotion, get a better salary, you know, take on more responsibility. For me, you know, of course I want those things, but what I want to be doing is learning um, and progressing. And I want a pl to be in a place where my ideas are important and they're respected. And I have learned that if I'm not in a place like that, I don't want to spend too much time there. <laughs> if if I'm not learning and progressing, um, then it's time it's time to move on. And I have moved on in in somewhat different directions than I thought. But you know, I think what I've realized is that's okay. I, absolutely, and I think in the field of security, especially, and and for so many of the women that I've had a chance to talk with on this podcast, that first of all, their entry into security was somewhat accidental or not intentional. And it and sounds like your experience is, is similar to that. And their career paths are not sort of in, intentionally planned and, and directly linear. It, it's so often they take sort of winding paths to whether it's different, you know, supporting different organizations or tackling different problems within the security space and developing really kind of broad-based, multi-layered expertise that then helps them to, you know, serve in the, in the position they're in when we have a chance to, to talk on this show. Um, but it is, I, I love that focus on, you know, not necessarily always going for the promotion. I want to get this job and then my boss's job and then the next, but really like, are you learning? And, and are you growing professionally and intellectually and learning new skills? just as you were talking about a moment ago, moving from that reporting on the problem toward looking at and identifying the causes underlying those problems and seeing what could be done and, and building, you know, groups and teams to, to focus on that. It's a, it's, it's fascinating. And I think it, um, it sounds like it's a, it's a route that has kept you sort of intellectually sort of sharp and keen and, and focused on what, what you can learn next. Right. And I, I, I think somebody said this recently, and it really got me thinking that I think in the early stages of our careers, we spend so much time becoming experts, right? And, mm -hmm. being, you know, the most important thing is to be very good at my job and to impress everyone and, and make sure I'm absolutely the best that I can be. And then as you get a little bit older and you're confident in yourself, you are doing a good job, you are excelling in your role, you shift a little bit in priority to being a good global citizen. <laughs> as well. And, you know, really looking at ways that the skills that you now have can help a broader community in whatever way your job will allow you to do that. Oh, that's so well put and, and absolutely true. I feel like that's where I am in, in my career too. Like, what can I do now to make a difference? I've done my job really well. 
and what can I do now to, to help the sort of broader community? I think that's, I, I love that focus. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. In a world of safety, security, and protection, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That's why we created the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. The center is a trusted resource for those in the security, safety, and protection communities. We share strategies and best practices, insights on current and historical trends, and lessons learned through dialogue, discourse, and alternative analysis for some of the industry's top practitioners. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.co slash center. That's ontic.co slash center. I want to circle back just for a moment because you were talking about the, uh, building these, so the multidisciplinary groups and multi-stakeholder groups that you were just talking about, bringing in sort of practitioners and academics and, and having some aha moments in, in those. You clearly have expertise in organizing these types of multi-stakeholder and multi-perspective efforts toward understanding complex issues within security. Do you have any tips based on that experience and on your expertise for for building and operating those sorts of multi-stakeholder efforts when, when you're tackling complex problems like you did? Yes, I, I, but I think they're very simple tips. I really, really like to talk to people and I'm interested in what they have to say. Um, and I think that, and I'm very passionate about the topics that that we're, we're coming together to discuss. And I think that comes through. So when I did it for the government and military, um, it was very straightforward. There was always a problem, right, that we were trying to solve or trying to understand, you know, what are the causes of vulnerability in the Sahel, you know, so we could organize groups around that issue. And, you know, then we would come up with a um, an operating picture, which was usually some a white paper that we would write to say, this is what we think the underlying causes are, let's discuss, and then we would circulate that. And then it would stimulate everybody to agree, disagree, think about it. We would provide that in the beginning. And then we would we would just keep inviting people and then we would invite someone and they it accept. And then we'd say, who else should we invite? Who Who do you think needs to be in this room? And then we just, we, we really worked hard to create environments where disagreement was welcomed and discussion was welcomed and that everybody's opinion mattered. And, and in that sense, it, it felt really relatively easy to host. These were great discussions. And, and I have a story that I think is, is funny, but I tell a lot because there was a time that I was in Kenya and I had a couple of weeks of meetings with a variety of stakeholders, uh, Somali stakeholders, and they they were working for their country's government, you know, educational institutions, economic institutions, you know, and I just had a series of meetings in Kenya asking people, you know, what they thought about the future, what they thought their issues were. Um, and, you know, I got those meetings just because I kept asking people and emailing people and seeing if they were willing to come together. And some people agreed. and. 
I happened to be fairly heavily pregnant when I was there. And I remember coming, oh, wow. I was six <laughs> months pregnant, but I had a 10 pound baby. So you can imagine how, <laughs> how big I was at that point. And I came back and I was sharing my notes with people and saying, Hey, you know, this is the information that I got. And they were you know, astounded and said, must be because you're pregnant. People trust you to talk to you. But, you know, I don't think that was it at all. I really do. I think it was that I was asking them questions that they on issues they cared about. And they and someone was sitting there listening to them and saying, tell me more. You know, I'd really like to hear about that. And I was valuing it. And and they did have a stake in somebody knowing what their opinions were. So you know, in the corporate world, it's a little bit different. My stakeholder groups now tend to be different groups within the company um, that I'm bringing together to find out what they need and how we can help better. Um, but it's really the same process. I'm I'm working hard every day to find out what these other groups value, what's important to them, what questions they have, what do they need, um, and then I'm looking for ways that I can help them. And so, you know, you you just go from there. Um, there's you know, there's one other story I was thinking about um, when I was at OSAC. I would go to Jerusalem uh, on a you know semi regular basis. I would meet with Israeli business people and Palestinian business people, and at first I would meet with them separately. But eventually, the more we talked and got together, you know, we realized that these groups could really benefit from hearing each other's challenges and talking about solutions. And it wasn't long after that that. I was hosting the first ever joint Palestinian-Israeli OSAC meeting, and it was a huge success. It was a really big deal when it happened um, because they realized they could help each other. And it it was such a great meeting. Um, And anyway, so again, I think the point is when whether you're in government or the corporate world, it's really about talking to people, respecting their opinions, finding out what their challenges are and, you know, helping them get to what they need you know, by brainstorming solutions. That, that joint, first of all, that joint conference is quite an accomplishment. That, that's remarkable. But what I, I love, I, I really want to underscore for, um, for our listeners, th- what you're talking about here is really the skill and the intent of listening to someone else's perspective, asking what they see as the problem, asking what they see as the solution, asking what the perspective is. Mm -hmm. And it's a great contrast to what you were talking about a moment ago, where we spend the early parts of our careers developing expertise and demonstrating our expertise, right? I know how to do my job well. I'm good at my job. Especially when you're younger in your career, it's it's easy to feel a need to, well, people aren't going to take me seriously. I need to show that I know what I'm doing, show that I know what I'm talking about. But in that, in that push to demonstrate expertise, develop it and then demonstrate it, we, we often, at least I, I, I felt and, and have had colleagues share that they felt like it is, you're almost inhibited to ask questions about what other people think because it's like, well, maybe they're going to think I'm not as good at my job if I'm asking for their opinion. Mm-hmm. But really, that focus on listening within the security field especially is such a critical skill, whether you're talking with an individual who is planning an act of violence because they feel like they have run out of other options and you need to really listen to the type of of Israeli-Palestinian joint effort and conversations that you were able to foster. It it comes back to a desire to listen Mm -hmm. and an ability to listen. And I I think it's so important. I'm so glad you've, you've underscored this because it is a skill that is often looked at as a soft skill, but it is absolutely critical within the field of security to be able to have and use that skill. 
Yes, completely agree. Uh, let me ask you, uh, our focus in Women Who Protect is on showcasing different careers within security and protection and, and law enforcement, and also for giving women and girls who might be interested in our field, giving them some guidance and advice about how to pursue or, or even get into the field. What advice do you have or do you already give to women and girls who might be considering an, a career in security or in protection? Well, there's so many different things I could think of that I have learned along the way in uh, being in this field as long as I have. And, you know, when I started, it was very, very male dominated. I'm so happy to see that these days that it's it's much more balanced. Um, that's a really welcome change. Um, and I'm just so thrilled about it. But But I still think there can be hard moments, right? And there there certainly have been for me throughout my career where I've had to stay very tough and I've had to have faith and confidence in myself that I know what I'm doing, that I am good at my job. Um, there are still, you know, this is still the kind of field that, um, you know, we can be in dangerous situations um, on a regular basis. Um, we, it's a very unusual career choice. <laughs> there are times when we may be in danger or assessing danger and the stakes are very high. Um, I've, I've been part of, I've been in crazy parts of the world and I have been in situations that some people would never want to be in. And I've loved every minute of it. That's been a choice that I've made, but I think you really have to, um, you have to have some mental fortitude to stick with it and to know that that that's the place that that you've chosen and that's where you want to be, um, you you should be unapologetic about that. Um, I've been very lucky to have a family to in include a husband and two children who are so supportive of the field that I'm in. And if I say I need to go to Poland for a month to help people, you know, to help get people out of Ukraine, my family's like oh my goodness, how can we help you get there? You know, they've oh, never wow. made me feel guilty for a second about the choices that I've made. And and that's not to say that that there haven't been times that I myself have felt terrible, that I missed something or that I wasn't yeah. there to to um, help with homework. But, but that guilt, you know, you just have to put that aside. There are always going to be things to feel guilty about. And in especially in this kind of job where, there may be something that we just have to sprint on and go work on for a while. It, you know, as long as you are demonstrating the passion for your job and, you know, you're demonstrating, hey, I'm, I need to do this. My, my goal is to help people. I'm, you know, I'm in this because I'm trying to help people. And my family has always understood that and has always supported that. So, you know, I feel very lucky, but I also feel like I, I have done some work to foster they're the understanding that they have of what it is that I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Um, I, you know, just a quick example of, of how I think that's working is that I have a 12 year old who called me while I was at a conference last summer and was like, mom, mom, I think Ukraine might be winning the war. I just, I just wanted to oh. let you know. <laughs> oh, I love it. And I was like, whose 12 year old is following this war as closely, you know? And then I, I realized it's my 12 year old. This is our normal. Our normal is, you know, this is what I do. And I talk to them about it and I'm open. 
And so everybody's normal looks very, very different. And, and so I really think it's important to, you know, to recognize that. And I, and I also think though, that I've learned that again, in this field, we're in some very high stakes, very stressful situations on a regular basis. And there, you know, we can be involved in massive sprints all the time. You know, something yeah. crazy happens. It's all hands on deck, sometimes for days, sometimes for weeks. But what I've realized is that that's always going to be the case. It's going to be a roller coaster and you have to find ways to eat well, exercise, take deep breaths. You know, you need to be okay or you're mm-hmm. not, you're not good for anyone. Um, this job is extremely hard and cumulative stress can take a toll. So, um, I think that's important. And then, you know, I also, the the last thing I'll say is that I think these networking groups and, and everything I've been saying are so important. If you're trying to get into the field and you're not there yet, there are so many great groups that are out there. We talked about OSAC, Women in Security. There's the DC Analyst Roundtable. There's the Arab organization. There's so many groups of people who do this every day and they can help you get into it, but they can also help you when you're there. Whether it's like, you know, if you have a question about, well, I'm, I'm sending a traveler to Brazil, can someone help me? Or I'm, I'm having a rough day. You know, I'm, I'm struggling in my job. I, yep. I've just felt that the more open and transparent I am with my friends in this field, just to say, hey, I, I'm struggling with this situation. You know, every single time I find out that somebody else is struggling with the same thing. And then, you know, I learned from them. So I think that's really, really crucial. I, I love that last piece of advice, especially now as we've gone and, and held security positions through a pandemic and sort of coming out of a pandemic that so many of us were and still are juggling this mix of job stress and family mm-hmm. stress and elder care and childcare and stuck at home or locked down or exposed to things that is to be able to share with colleagues right now, like, hey, I'm having a rough day, rough week, whatever. I feel uh, underwater. I feel like I'm I'm not fully showing up to my job or my family or or both. It, it To just be able to share that and, and hear back from colleagues who are experiencing the same, because so many of us are, is really, really helpful. And, and, and I'm so glad you, you gave that as a, as a piece of advice. I think now and, and throughout careers, early, mid-stage, late, it's so important to be able to share that. Like, hey, <laughs> on, a, on a professional level, I know, I know I'm getting my job done, but personally, I'm struggling right now. It's so important to be able to share that. Right. And everyone is <laughs> yes. right now. I mean, yes. part of my role is also insider threat. So I'm seeing on a um, probably more granular level what the stress levels are within organizations, especially as as people have had to go maybe from one day a week at work to two or three days a week, or some of them are going back full time. Just these added stresses of everything we've all been through for the last few years, and especially also in this field, all of the the crazy hours that we have had to put in, you know, through COVID and protests and wars and everything we've been dealing with. And those, those of us in insider threat, the increase in mental health issues, you know, we're putting in crazy hours as, as practitioners in this field and we can burn out too. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and we're also seeing attrition within the security field. So Mm -hmm. for those of us who are still in our jobs, 
maybe working with smaller staff or less experienced staff. And so I, I know we will come out of it, but right now we're all in the thick of it and, and sort of going from crisis to crisis. Our, um, Luke Quanstrom, who's the CEO at Ontic, just uh, was gave a keynote a couple of weeks ago where he was talking about this and referred to it as perma-crisis. And I think mm. within the field of security, that that rings so true right now. Yeah, I would agree. Anything else that that you'd love to share that we haven't had a chance to cover? I think maybe just one more thing that I was thinking about is that, you know, not everybody is as lucky as I've been in certain parts of my career to continue to be able to grow and always take on more responsibilities and, you know, move into different directions within the organization that they're in. So I would say that if there are things that you're passionate about in this field that you're not necessarily doing in your everyday life, do them anyway. Um, You know, if you're interested, for example, one of the things that I've been thinking about more and more, as I'm sure everybody is, is climate change and the effect on mental health it's going to have on security, on people moving, on where our offices go, on, on so many different things. And it's not really a part of my job right now, but I'm starting to explore other areas in the company where other people are thinking about that. And I'm pinging a few of my benchmarking groups to see who else is working on it. This isn't something that my boss necessarily told me to do, um, but it's a it's something I'm interested in. And there are enough people, I think, out there in the field um, and maybe even within your organization you didn't know about who might be looking at the same thing. So um, I think this is this is something that if you have passion projects, they can often turn into real value for your team if you just keep exploring it, even if it's not part of your regular job now. Um, so that's that's maybe one other thing that I would add. But yeah, I think we've we've spoken about a lot. <laughs> no, that's great. No, and I think that's so important too because it gets back to what you were talking about in the beginning. That sort of key, always learning. Right. And, you know, and, and doing your job, but also continuing to learn and progress and, and look at problems from different perspectives or develop additional areas of expertise and, and um, things that people are passionate about. I think it's so important because I've, I have seen ways that developing that knowledge may look like it's completely separate from your day job right now, but oftentimes it then loops back in and has a tangential or direct impact. So it's always helpful exactly. to do it. You said it better than I did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Mary, I just want to thank you for joining us on Women Who Protect. It has been such a wonderful opportunity to talk with you and to hear about your experiences and to hear your advice. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciated being a part of it. It was fun. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. Again, that's ontic.co slash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Roll the Dice and was written by Mark Wallach. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast@ontic.co or visit ontic.co/center for more information. Thanks for listening.